You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. Before we get into the show today, I just want to remind you we have a ton of exciting things coming up in the pipeline for the show for this summer, um, so you want to tune into those. Also, check us out on all the social outlets at millionairesunveiled.com. In addition, we have several properties that we are closing on shortly. If you'd like to invest, let us know. Send us an email, and we'll get you some of the documents. Um, once again, that's for accredited investors. So without further ado, let's get right into the show. So on today's show, we have Doc G, and he is a physician focused on internal medicine with a net worth of about $6.5 million. And about $2 million of that is in taxable accounts, $1.5 million in real estate, and then he has cash in 529 accounts and, and a few other things. And a couple of things that stood out to us in this interview, he has eight streams of income. And... You know, he started selling artwork as one of his streams of income. He's since stopped and picked up some other side gigs. And so he talks about those different side hustles and how much he makes from each of those. He makes about 60K a month, half of which comes from those side incomes. He also talks about hiring a financial advisor and then later firing his financial advisor and what led to that decision. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Doc G. Welcome to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast. Today on the call, we've got Doc G. Doc G, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and what you're up to? Sure. So my name is Doc G. I'm 44 years old. I'm married. My wife is 42. We live in the Chicago suburbs. We have two kids. Uh, my son is 13 years old and my daughter is 10. I grew up in Chicago and my father was a physician and all. You know, all my childhood, I wanted to be just like him. And he actually died suddenly when I was eight years old. So that kind of put in me this whole idea of being a physician was what I was meant to be. Um, But I grew up with people who were very savvy about money. Um, My mom is an accountant. And at that time, she ran her own business. Uh, She remarried. And my stepfather uh, is a healthcare executive and ended up starting and owning his own business. And I grew up kind of in this atmosphere where my parents were always hustling, whether it was their primary job or they also owned quite a bit of real estate. I remember running with my stepdad to, to pave driveways and to clean up apartments while they were being rented from one person to another. Um, my stepdad also had a coin business, which he ran out of the house. So I kind of grew up in this place where I was very interested in medicine. Um, But I learned a lot about business. Um, I would have never known it at the time, but my parents were like the ultimate stealth wealth practitioners, right? They had a decent amount of money. They made a lot of money every year. Um, But we didn't really live high on the hog. I mean, we had a nice house and we lived in a nice suburb, um, but they often saved in excess of 50% of what they earned. And it's only as an adult I really became, you know, became aware of that and was able to appreciate it. I went through college and medical school and I loved being a doctor. I got married and you know that's probably one of my best financial decisions ever is I married the right person. Um, and you know, following my parents' footsteps, I got involved in real estate and I started my own side businesses. I actually for quite a while owned and ran a business selling artwork on the internet. 
Um, and as I started getting worn out by medicine, uh, I started thinking, well, I'm making all this money and I'm saving all this money and I'm being frugal like my parents were. Um, maybe it's time to slow down at medicine. So at that time, I actually had a financial advisor and I asked the advisor, I said, hey, you know, when can I retire? When can I start slowing down? And he started asking me a bunch of questions. Uh, and one of the big questions he asked is he said, well, you know, how much do you want to spend a year? And without even thinking about it, I was like, oh, $250,000 a year at least. Um, so he did all these, you know, estimations and Monte Carlo simulations. And he said, yeah, you're not there yet. Um, he wouldn't even consider the real estate I owned. He just didn't even feel that that was part of the equation. So I put my head down and I worked more. And then I went to my mother, who's an accountant, who helps me run my business. And I said, Mom, you know, you guys have always been ultra successful. You know, when can I slow down? When can I retire? And she kind of looked at my finances and she said, you know what, you need about $10 million. And of course, I kind of listened to her and I said, ah, $10 million, that, that sounds about right. And you know, I didn't look at my own budget. I didn't look at my own spending needs. I kind of took it as that's what it was. Um, and I kind of just put my head down and kept working. Strangely enough, in 2014, something happened that really changed everything. Um, and it actually has to do with one of your earlier participants in this podcast. Jim Dolly actually contacted me out of nowhere. I had no idea who he was. Um, at the time, I was writing a blog about medicine, and you know it was moderately successful. And he had just written his book, The White Coat Investor. And so he wrote me. He said, "Hey, you know, you have a little bit of an audience. Will you read and review my book?" So he sent me a copy of The White Coat Investor, which I thought was the coolest thing because it was for free. I didn't have to pay for it. Um, and I read through it, and I was really impressed. And I'm like, "Well, I probably do about seventy percent of the things he suggests." But the other 30% were really helpful. And so I started reading his blog. And then after that, I started reading some other blogs like Physician on Fire and a few other bloggers out there who are interested in financial independence. And about a few years ago, medicine started again wearing on me even more and seeing some of the sadness and dealing with some of the difficulty of being on call 24-7. Um, I decided to take a deep dive into kind of the blogosphere and investing books um, and I discovered that I had a lot more than I really needed, that I you know, was financially independent the whole time, um, and that I could start doing things the way I kind of wanted to. Um, and that led me to where I am today. That led me to deciding to blog about, about personal finance, which is something I had never done before, and, and probably what led you guys to find me. Good stuff. So what is your net worth today? So my net worth hovers somewhere around $6.5 million. It really depends, obviously, on the day in the market. Today was a good day, so I'm probably a little over that. Awesome. And how is that broken up? So basically, I think of it as broken up mostly in thirds. So about $2 million or a third of it is in a taxable account. Um, two million of it is in tax deferred that's mixed between my 401k, my wife's 401k, a, a few Roth IRAs, and then some traditional IRAs. And then another two million is investment. Um, I mean, excuse me, is real estate investment. 1.5 million of that is wholly owned real estate, uh, which I rent out and manage. And then 500,000 of that is caught up in my house that I live in. After that, there's a smattering of cash. Um, we have about $320,000 in 529 plans for both of our kids. Uh, my wife and I both own uh, a long-term care insurance policy that has about 80, 90,000 cash value. 
then if you throw in a few cars and some rugs and some artwork, uh, that would get us somewhere to the 6.5, 6.6 range. Awesome. And then kind of breaking down what's what's inside of those taxable accounts. Is that individual stocks or index funds or actively managed mutual funds or what do you hold in those? So my allocations have changed a bit over the years. I fired my financial um, my financial advisor and that probably plays a big role in it. So right now I've got what I'd call the ultimate lazy portfolio. Um, I'm completely vanguard. Uh, it's broken up, you know, 60% of it is VTSAX. So that's the total market Vanguard index. Um, about 30% of it is VTIAX, which is the uh, international Vanguard index. And then about 10% is the VBTLX, which is the total bond fund. Um, and I kind of like it that way because I can put the money there. I can feel like it's well diversified and I cannot pay attention to it. Uh, and that's probably the most important thing to me because while I read a lot about investing and even blog about investing, I am by no means an expert. I've gone out and tried to learn exactly what I need to know to be successful to meet the market. Uh, I have no interest nor thought that I'm going to be beating the market on a regular basis. I'd be really happy if I could just come in with market returns. Sure. And, and that allocation is what you follow in each of your accounts? including maybe the 529B? It, it is. Um, with the 529s, it depends. You know, uh, Some of them have specific investments we have to go in. But in all of our accounts, we try to uh, mimic that allocation uh, with a few exceptions. For instance, I don't hold uh, the bond allocation in my taxable accounts because uh, for tax purposes, it makes more sense to put it into uh, the 401ks. But all being said and done, when you look at all of the paper investments uh, as a whole, it would kind of break down into that 60-30-10 profile. Awesome. So you mentioned you you fired your financial advisor. So talk about maybe why you initially hired your financial advisor and then what led you to that change. So, you know, initially I was young. I was a high income earner and I was busy just trying to learn how to be a doctor and trying to learn how to kind of run that business. And my wife was in the same place. Uh, she was moving up the corporate ladder and neither of us felt like we had the time or energy to learn about finances. And I will say straight out, that was probably our biggest mistake. Um, we should have definitely done this earlier, um, but we didn't. And so we had this pile of money and I, eventually went with a, a family friend, a guy I'd grown up with, who I'm very fond of, who I, I think is a great guy and really smart. Um, and I knew I could trust him as a person. And so we handed over our funds to him. And interestingly enough, the funny part was, is, you know, when we handed our funds to him, it was about at the same time that my wife was getting involved with her 401k at work. So we gave all of our taxable assets to him and he advised us on those. And my wife kind of went through the website at work and they asked a bunch of questions and put her through an algorithm and kind of said, you should be roughly in this allocation and go ahead and put your money here. And that's what she did. And so fast forward 10, 15 years later, um, I started looking at how our investments were doing. And I talked to my broker and I said, you know, I talked to my financial advisor. I said, Let, let's put everything together. How have we done in the last 10 to 15 years? Um, 
And actually, we didn't do so bad. You know, he looked at our total returns, and we had probably had returns of somewhere between eight and nine percent. Now, this has been a really good market for these years. Um, so we were probably a little bit under the S and P five hundred index, but we were good. Um, on the other hand, he was charging me assets under management, and I was getting to the point where I was giving, you know, paying eighteen to twenty thousand dollars a year to have him do this. So then I flipped over to my wife's four hundred one k, and her returns were. 10%. Um, and those were 10% without investment advisor, without any assets under management. The expense ratios on her funds were better than the expense ratios on my funds with my advisor. And my advisor had me in just tons of stocks. Um, and so when I compared it, I said, look, if my wife could fill out a 10 question questionnaire on her computer and end up with better returns than my financial advisor, um, <laughs> something is wrong here. And this correlated really well with all the reading I had done. Um, you know, investing can be incredibly complicated or it can be incredibly straightforward. And, and yes, you know, perfect may require you to really dive deeply, but I don't need perfect. I need good. Um, and so I was able to figure out uh, asset allocation that would be good enough for me that wouldn't take a huge amount of time. And if I spent you know, 10 hours a month or five hours a month reading a book here, here and there, reading a blog here and there, I could learn enough that I could protect myself. And that would be it. I wouldn't be, you know, paying for assets under management. I wouldn't be paying these huge expense ratios for mutual funds. Um, and I just felt like my wealth would grow faster that way. And so from then on, you kind of took it yourself. And, and that's when you started doing the research and you pulled you, all your money out and, and started doing everything on your own. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And it, it was a little bit of a process, you know, actually wrestling my money out from, from this guy who was a good family friend. So, you know, that was, you know, emotionally um, having that conversation and working through that was not the easiest. And then physically moving my assets in kind over to Vanguard, trying to figure out what to liquidate and when, um, trying to match my capital gains and my capital losses so that I wasn't paying a huge amount of tax. All of that took a heck of a lot more thought than actually trying to figure out what the appropriate asset allocation was. Sure. So um, we wrote a recent article on Business Insider, and, and one of the things we wrote was about streams of income and successful people understanding that, that income needs to come more from just your primary job. And it seems that you figured that out from a young age. You kind of started about, you, st you talked about selling artwork initially. How did you come to that realization? So, uh, you know, I think some of that just was from watching my parents, right? So you grow up with parents who are running back and forth to houses and condos and cleaning them up and renting them. Um, and I'm seeing my stepdad own his own major business, but then also selling coins out of a household. Um, and you just kind of learn that, one, for security, uh, that's part of it. The other part is if you really want to get to those higher levels of income, um, your main hustle isn't always going to be the end all be all. Now it can for some people, there's some people who get, who are very high earners and basically based on their main job, they get it done. What I found actually is that my main hustles, a physician could pay me really well. Um, but then I started doing a lot of what I'll call lazy side hustles, right? I call them lazy side hustles, not because you're lazy to do them. I call them lazy because being a physician, I already had a set of skills 
that it wasn't really hard for me then to open up new revenue streams. An example is, you know, so I had been practicing and seeing patients in nursing homes forever. So one of the nursing homes finally came to me and said, you know what, you're here all the time. You do really well. Why don't you become our medical director? And I said, sure, what's in it for me? And they said, well, we'll pay you $2,000 a month and we'll give you all the patients who don't have any other doctors. So that, in a sense, was a perfect lazy side hustle. I didn't have to work for it. I didn't have to think about it. I didn't have to learn any major new skills. And any skills I did learn, I kind of learned on the fly. So I started doing those. And then, you know, I started doing some of the not so lazy side hustles. I mean, it was ingrained in me and, and my wife, too, whose parents also owned real estate. It was kind of ingrained in me that successful, wealthy people own real estate. Um, not real estate they live in, but real estate they do something with. Um, so, you know, we got into real estate for pleasure, and then it ended up being a business. We actually bought a condo in downtown Chicago, um, somewhere to hang out in the weekends. And we fixed it. We bought it as the market was just flying down because we were heading towards the housing crisis. And we fixed it up, and we used it for about six months. And then we said, eh, we're not really using it as much as we want to. The kids are a little too young, so we rented it out. And when we saw how easy it was to rent that condo out, and, you know, we were making a little money on it. It was cash flowing, you know, maybe five or $10,000 a year, nothing major, but it was something. And we had bought it in cash, so we didn't have any mortgage or any major expenses. But then the market tanked. And my wife, who loves looking at real estate, had been on the real estate sites and she started just finding foreclosures. So we found a foreclosure, another condo. In this case, um, we liked condos because we were busy professionals and they were really easy to upkeep and the condo associations did half of our job for us. Uh, we made sure that we found condos in hot areas. We made sure that we found condos that had condo associations that were not likely to limit rentals. Um, and then we just kept lowballing people, lowballing the banks with these foreclosures until we found a good property or two. Um, and then we started running those properties. We actually bought a house in Wisconsin on Lake Michigan that was in foreclosure with its own Sandy beach. We rented it out for three or four years and the market had increased so much. We sold it, you know, we bought it for $400,000. We fixed it up for $40,000. We rented it, you know, for $2,700 a month, you know, making about $15,000 a year on it for four or five years. And then we sold it for $700,000 and we didn't use any realtors. We sold it to a neighbor and just used a lawyer. Um, and then we took that money and then pushed that into two more rental condos in our area. So, you know, it just kind of happened. We fell into it. Some of it was more just the excitement of doing some, something new. Some of it was that we liked real estate. Uh, but for me, I always kind of knew I didn't want to be dependent just on my hustle, because I saw as a physician, there was only so far I was going to go. I, I practice general internal medicine. So I'm not a surgeon. I don't do procedures. I knew that I would only make so much that way. So how many income streams do you have today? So if you include my lazy side hustles, uh, I've got to have about seven or eight. So, so you know, I'm a physician and I see patients in nursing homes. I also do contract work for a hospice. So that's one side hustle. Um, I'm medical director of a number of nursing homes. That's another side hustle. I run what's called a palliative care program in some of the nursing homes. That's another side hustle. Um, I consult with a company that provides nurse practitioners um, to assisted livings. Um, so that's another side hustle. I do medical legal consulting um, and do expert witness consulting. So that's another one. Um, we do real estate. So we own now four properties 
and my wife and I manage all four of them. We don't use a management company. Um, and I think that's about it. I blog now. I don't make any money on blogging. Um, I certainly wouldn't turn it down if I eventually did. Um, but I'm always kind of looking for new ways to to do things. Oh, I forgot to mention, I do telehealth too. I do about two hours a week of telehealth consulting because it's fun, but it's another side hustle. Um, especially in medicine, you know, when you practice medicine, you are very dependent on your patients, but you're also very dependent on the government. Um, the government is often your main payer, especially when you're taking care of older people like me who have Medicare. Um, and you're also very dependent on, on the restrictions and the compliance that the government forces on us. So, you know, 10 years ago when I practiced medicine, I'd walk into a patient's room, I'd write a little note with my pen, I'd look him in the eyes, I'd examine him. It was great. Now, basically, I, you know, have an electronic medical record and I have to fill this electronic medical record out when I'm in with a patient and there are all these checkboxes and lists and levels of compliance I have to fulfill that really make it not nearly as enjoyable as it was. Um, and if I had not been doing all these side hustles and found all these ways to separate myself from what I knew might become a problem with the restrictions and the practice of medicine, I'd be in a really bad place right now. Interesting. So what has your savings rate been over the course of your career? Yeah, so I would say that most of the time it's been about 50%. Um, it's probably more now just because we just don't spend that much. I think we spend more than a lot of financially independent people, but but probably not as much as we could. You know, when we first started out, we didn't look at it based on percentage or even numbers. It was always like, well, we'll save your income and we'll use mine, right? And so when we first came out and I was resident in residency, my wife, actually, my wife made more than me. So I think we we saved my income as a resident and we used hers as spending. And then I got finished with residency and I started making a lot more money. So then we started using mine for spending and saving hers. But then both of our income started increasing and we just started saving, you know, the lower of the two incomes, whichever it was. But even then we started putting away more and more. Um, so I would say, you know, rule of thumb is generally about 50%, but my bet is it's more many years. In between all your side hustles, how much how much of your of your gross income comes from side hustles versus kind of your main hustle? So if you include so right now, you know my income can vary. I mean it can really vary. Um, when I was at the top of my practice, when you put my side hustles and my hustles and everything together, I was probably making almost a million dollars a year. Um, right now, I'd say, and I've I've slowed down quite a bit. But right now, I'd say that, you know, maybe I make $250,000 a year just seeing patients. And then I probably make another two hundred fifty, three hundred thousand dollars $300,000 a year with my side hustles. Um, and then, of course, my wife works on top of that. So your side hustles now have kind of outgrown your main hustle to some degree. Yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm a, a student of efficiency. So one of my side hustles actually is a full-time job. I work for a hospice palliative care company and I run, I do about as much as their full-time employees, but I found ways to do it really, really efficiently and I'm only a contractor. Um, so my side hustles in some ways like this one is actually, could be considered a full-time job on its own. In fact, you know, I always joke when I really get sick of working, 
um, I enjoy that side hustle quite a bit too. And it doesn't take a huge amount of my time. I, you know, I can stop everything and just do that. And that can cover our expenses for the rest of our lives. So how many hours do you work doing all of these side hustles and your main hustle and yeah, so I would say with me, work is a funny thing, right? Because there's work meaning actually physically being in meetings and seeing patients. And then there's work meaning taking phone calls. I pretty much take phone calls 24-7. This was a choice because I do a lot of work in nursing homes uh, and I'm director of a lot of nursing homes. So at any given time, day or night on vacation or not, one in the morning, I'm occasionally getting phone calls. So in a sense, I'm always working. But if you look at just the time that I'm seeing patients or in meetings, I'd say it's 55 hours a week. I'm, I'm a really early morning person. I start at about 5.15, 5.30. I probably hit my first nursing home and see my first patient as they're being woken up to get their medicine about 5.30 in the morning. And then I'm usually home many days by one or two in the afternoon, definitely before the kids come home from school. You know, I want to go back to something that, that hasn't been talked about on our show yet. You mentioned that you've got a long-term care insurance policy that's got a cash value of 80 or 90 grand, I believe. And usually, it's not something people think about for one, and two, they usually don't think about it until they're much later in life, maybe around their 60s. How come you have chosen to, to take one of those out at your age? Yeah, so it's funny, you know, my stepdad and my mom, very, very savvy with money. And, you know, they kind of hammered it into me very early. They said, you know, the two things you really should think about is make sure you have a great disability policy um, and think strongly about long-term care insurance when you're young um, because that's when it's cheap. So looking back now, as I look at my net worth of $6.5 million, could I have self-insured for long-term care? Probably. Um you know, the question is how you want to spend your money as you get older. But, you know, healthcare costs are huge. Um, and, you know, we know one third to 50% of people end up in some type of long term care setting. I certainly, working in nursing homes, see it all the time. Um, and my advisor had suggested, and I still haven't decided if this was a good suggestion or a bad suggestion, you know, there's a, we, we, bought it through a company called Lincoln. And as opposed to paying monthly or yearly, we plunked down, I think at the time it was $75,000 each. And now we just own the policy. So we don't pay any premiums anymore. It was one time and that was it. Um, and I like that for a few reasons. Um, one is that I see and have often seen that as people get older and they get sick, they forget to pay the premiums and they've been paying premiums forever. Um, and then all of a sudden they lose their policy. Um, two, I wanted to buy it. You know, the, when you buy a, a policy like this, the younger you buy it, the better. And so I kind of thought if I bought it at 40, uh, I would get the best pricing. Now, looking back, the downside is that if this company, Lincoln, goes out of business, I guess I could lose my policies. And when you're talking about a policy that could pay out in 30 or 40 years, it's certainly something to consider. Um, but I thought at the time it was worthwhile. I like the policy. It has a cash value. I can cash it in at any time and take the cash out if I want. Um, of course, it would be at a loss, but I know it's there. It also has a life insurance portion. So if I or, or my wife die prematurely, we get paid a few hundred thousand dollars. Um, so all of that kind of fit in, and it was 
something I could check off and say done and not think about again. And again, if you're not if you're not figuring it out from talking to me yet, uh, I like simplicity. And so if I can make investing and insurance simple, uh, all the better. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You, you mentioned that your parents played a significant role in, in teaching you and, and, and being examples, you know, of saving money and investing. How has that led you to help your kids? And, and how are you go, approaching that situation to teach your kids about saving and investing? So I, I think we attack it in a few different ways. One, we do, even though we have money and they know we have money, um, we certainly do not spend lightly. We don't just go buy things. If they want something, they've got to make a good case for why they want it. And often, even if they want something, we'll wait a week or two before buying it. Um, we often comparison shop. Um, we often buy used. Uh, my son and daughter actually are both really good at fixing things. Uh, my wife came up with the idea, which I think is a splendid idea, is that actually we don't we don't give them an allowance per se anymore. We used to give them a weekly allowance. Now what we do is at the beginning of the year, we give them, so for my son who's 13, we would give him $10 a week. So instead of giving him $10 a week, we give him $520 and January 1st. And he puts it in the bank and it's really up to him to decide how to use that money. But he's also responsible for buying things like his clothes uh, and his toys and whatever he wants, he has to buy it. We cover food generally, uh, but if he wants to go f- buy candy or junk food, he has to do it on his own. Uh, we cover school supplies, but it's really up to him. And so we started that with him when he was around 10 and now he's 13 and it's worked pretty well. Uh, and now we're starting to do the same thing with my daughter because she just turned 10. It's not perfect. Uh, you know, I-, I want them to get a spreadsheet going and to keep track and to be really tight with their money and they're not there yet. Um, <laughs> But I think it's real important in their financial education to understand. Um, we are open with them about money. We don't necessarily talk about exactly how much we have, but we're open to them that that to make money, you have to work hard. Uh, we're very open to them about what things cost, right? So, you know, my son wanted um, uh, an, uh, an Apple Watch. And for us, that was too much for a kid of his age. Um, but he really, really wanted, and he wanted it for years. And my wife works for a company that, you know, you buy a Fitbit and you track your health and you get points. If you're active, you get points if you track your eating. So what I did is I worked for six to eight months, making sure I got more than 10,000 steps a day. And I tracked my eating every day. And my son watched me as I was doing this. He'd watch as my wife and I went out for a long walk. He would watch this whole thing and see what it took. And at the end of that eight months, I had enough points to get an Apple Watch. And so I got an Apple Watch and I gave it to him. And he was ultra excited. And I gave it to him and I said, I want you to think about all the things I did to get this Apple Watch for free. I want you to realize that it was 250 or $350, but actually it was a lot of my time. It was a lot of steps. It was a lot of tracking my food. And, and so things have a value. And I wanted him to clearly see that value. And as opposed to just saying, look, it's $250, I felt like this was a way that I could teach him above and beyond what the, what the number attached to the money meant. Sure. Wow. I think that's a, I think that's a great story. What part is as charitable giving played, you know, at all through your guys's life? Um, so, so we are definitely for it. <laughs> um, I opened a donor advised fund 
this year, actually, with some of the tax arbitrage going on um, and the changes of um, the tax le- taxing levels, we decided to go ahead and, and put about $60,000 into a donor advised fund. But we generally try to donate $20,000 a year to various causes. Um, we've done Doctors Without Borders. We've done My Daughter's School because she goes to a private school, which which definitely needs the funding, and they do a really wonderful job. Um, we've donated a lot to the ACLU over the last year or two. Um, so we try to give um, – it's – the right thing to do. Uh, it's good for our community, and of course, uh, their tax benefits on top of it. So, you know, my advisor had me in all sorts of stocks, uh, and these stocks made a lot of money. Um, and so, as opposed to taking the hack tax hit and selling them, I just donated the stocks. Um, so that saved me a lot on capital gains, uh, as well as I got the deductions for the charitable giving. Uh, and then I got to help people too. So it was kind of a, a win all the way around. Awesome. I haven't asked this next question uh, before, but I'm, I'm kind of curious to see what you think. So you're at a net worth of about 6.5 million. Do you think, you know, either friends or family or neighbors, do they know, uh, you know, how successful financially you've been? And, and have you noticed that they treat you any differently as you've become more financially successful? So I don't think most know my family probably does. Um, I wouldn't say most of our friends know with one exception. So I would say that we were doing stealth wealth perfectly, um, living nicely and modestly, but, but you know, neither of us are, are particularly showy. And then my car died. And I am not a car person, but I felt really strongly that I wanted a, an electric car. And at the time, I was visiting patients in their homes. So I may drive 75, 80, 100 miles a day. Uh, So this was a few years ago, and I went in search of an electric car that had a range that could take me where I wanted to go, and there was only one that really fit the criteria. And I wanted one that was four-wheel drive. So I had owned a Prius before, and I loved my Prius, uh, and there were fully electric Priuses or at least really um, fuel-efficient Priuses, but none of them were four-wheel drive. I'm driving through the Chicago snow. So I bought a Tesla, a uh, Tesla Model S. And that changed things. I will tell you, people definitely looked at me differently. I actually got fired from two jobs right around that time, not for cause, but because the nursing homes decided they wanted to go a different way. These were two of my side hustles. And I'm fairly convinced that driving up in that Tesla did not help my case. Hmm. That's interesting. So where do you go from here? Do you have a do you have a net income or a, you know either an income goal or a retirement goal or a side hustle goal or or what's your plan? So that's a great question. Um, certainly, I'd love to hit eight figures, but at this point, if I just make enough to cover my costs and I invest well, that should happen in a number of years either way, just because of compound interest and what I'll make in the market. Um, But my goal now, actually, is to really figure out what all this means. So I'm financially independent. I have enough money that if I stopped working today and if my wife stopped working today and we invested fairly wisely and spent within our means, neither of us should have to work again. And yet here I am hustling away doing all this stuff for work. Now, granted, I have cut down, especially now is what I'm really doing is cutting down on the things I don't like to do. 
But it leaves a lot of questions. And that's a lot about what my blog is about, too, is so what does it mean now when you don't, you know, you spent a lot of your life focusing on how to make money. And, and for me, the guy who grew up wanting to be just like his dad, I spent a lot of time focusing on becoming a doctor and something funny happened. Um, I became a doctor and I became pretty good at being a doctor. And then all of a sudden it wasn't, didn't fulfill or sustain me enough. Um, and I started seeing some of the downsides and the practice of medicine has changed a lot. So then I, you know, I said, well, I've been working all this time and making money and now I'm financially independent, but what does that mean? You know, what, what does it look like after you're financially independent? What, what motivates you? What, what's your purpose in life? So I spend a lot of time now and what my now is about is trying to learn how to become the best me, you know, someone who contributes to the world, someone who does good things, someone who finds passion and hobbies, someone who, you know, creates relationships and bonds and does things meaningfully um and that is actually much more scary than worrying about when or when i will or when i won't be financially independent uh right now where i am the money thing was hard work but you know as, as you'll hear a lot of these bloggers and these personal finance people tell you it's all math right um what happens after is not math at all and it's quite a big open question and and that's something i i openly struggle with um, but also I'm excited about and, and ready to explore. Do you know how old you were when you hit your first million? I'm guessing it was in my early thirties. Um, I can't remember. I didn't write it down. Um, but it happened fairly quickly after I started practicing in medicine. I mean, I, I probably made $125,000 a year, my first year of work. And then by my second year, I made 250000 with bonuses and everything. And then as I got to my fifth or sixth year, I was making about three or 400000 a year. And my wife was working. And by then, she was making one or $200,000 a year. And then we already had investments and all sorts of things going on and properties. So I, I, I suspect it happened, happened in my early 30s. So what advice would you give to a new medical school graduate that is just starting residency or just finished residency and is going to start as an attending physician? So there are a few things. One is don't get a financial advisor. Put the time in and actually learn it for yourself. I'm amazed how easy it was to learn about basic finance. Now, again, you know, I believe that, that perfect is the enemy of good. I am not perfect at this. I am not expert. But I, I could learn fairly quickly enough to be prudent. So first and foremost, take the few hours a month, read a few books, look at a few blogs, and know enough that you don't have to rely on someone else to manage your money because they will never manage it as well as you. That, that's rule one. Um, rule two is if you're going to get married, marry well. I mean, talk about what's going to drain you financially and emotionally. If you marry the wrong person um, who has different beliefs than you or who you can't get along with or you can't communicate with, um, that's going to throw a wrench into all your plans, financial or otherwise. Um, and then I guess lastly, something that I've really been thinking about more lately is, you know, be prudent and be frugal, but forget financial independence when you're first coming out. Find, imagine that you're post-financial independence and think about how you want to be spending your time. Figure what that is. And then try to do that and make money at it. And 
assume you'll make a little less money and you might not get to financial independence as fast, but you'll probably enjoy the ride more uh, and be less burned out when you get there. Where can people find more about you? Yeah, so I would love it if you come by and check out the blog. It's diversefi.com, diverse, D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I.com. Um, or you could always email me, docg at diversefi.com. Uh, I'm also on Twitter. Uh, it's at docg, diversefi, believe it or not. Someone else had at docg. Uh, and I'm also <laughs> on Facebook, and you can see the links on the blog. Uh, but if you want to reach me, I'd love to hear from you. Good stuff. All right, Doc G, net worth at $6.5 Thanks for coming on the show today. Oh, I, it's been wonderful. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.